Well, thank you very much and good morning. It's good to be back with you again. Don't think I need that. As I said last week, Jeremy wanted me to focus on forgiveness. There's a lot of other things I can preach on. Forgiveness is not everything in the Christian life, but I would say it is the foundation to everything in the Christian life. It's the core and heart and foundation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But all too often, we Christians tend to leave it there. We practice forgiveness in becoming Christians. We confess our sins to God, or at least confess that we are sinners. We believe that Jesus Christ died for our sins. We get born again. We get justified. The Holy Spirit comes and lives inside of us. And maybe we confess a few sins on and off as our Christian life goes on. And we hear that we should forgive one another. We need to forgive one another. We're commanded to forgive one another. We must forgive one another. It's a benefit to forgive one another, but we don't do a very good job of that. Amen? Amen? And when we do practice forgiveness, oftentimes it's the world's model of forgiveness because that has crept into the church so prevalently that we're even blind and unaware of how we've been deceived. I said last week that I have 60 Christian books, tapes, CDs, Christian books, uh, tapes and CDs by Christian authors, men, women, charismatic, non-charismatic, traditional, Catholic, Protestant, uh, young authors, old authors, seminary professors, pastors, megachurch pastors, Christian counselors. And out of those 60 Christian publications, I have documented 31 ways different to forgive. And even if you don't know what forgiveness is, you'd probably guess there and be correct that there's only one way to forgive in the Bible. So we're living at a time when Satan has been able to saturate the church with counterfeits. I'm sure they're counterfeits because none of those ways to forgive include the cross of Jesus Christ, which ought to shock us if you've been in the church for very long and have a heart for God and for his word and for his people. How in the world is the church preaching models of forgiveness that don't include the cross of Jesus Christ? Because the Bible clearly says that without the cross of Jesus Christ, God himself cannot forgive anyone. Amen? If Jesus hadn't died and paid the penalty for your sins, God could not forgive you. If Jesus Christ had not died and paid the penalty for other people's sins, he could not forgive them. So how are Christians coming up with models of forgiveness that says you need to forgive other people without the cross of Jesus Christ with something that God himself can't even do? Christians often say to me, why did God make forgiveness so hard? It's so hard for me to forgive my mom, my dad, my ex-husband, my ex-wife, my children, my whoever, that, that unfair boss, that boy, that whoever. Why is forgiveness so hard? I say, well, it's not hard. It's just impossible if you don't know the truth. But if you know the truth, the truth will set you free. But if you don't know you don't know the truth, then you're really stuck. Does that make sense? If you think you know the truth and don't know it, then you're stuck. Someone asked me uh, just a year or two ago at the end of one of my seminars, she said to me, who are the hardest people to teach biblical forgiveness to? And I laughed out loud immediately because the answer came to me. I didn't have to say, oh, let me think for a second because there's this group and this group. No, it was immediately I knew the hardest group to teach biblical forgiveness to. And I laughed out loud and I said, oh, that's easy. And she said, who? I said, evangelical Christians. 
And her mouth dropped open because she's one and I consider myself. And she goes, how can that be? I said, because we think we already know. And we don't know we don't. And when you don't know you don't know, then you don't look for the answer. I had the problem in my life of needing to forgive people in my life uh, 15, 20 years ago. And for two years, I worked deliberately on forgiving my wife in particular. Not for big sins, just for the little sins that come up in everyday living in a small house with six kids doing homeschool where neither of you are perfect yet and like Jesus Christ. And so you do sin against each other and just the little things build up over time because we weren't practicing forgiveness with each other if you don't practice forgiveness the sins and the damage and the feelings don't go away with time they go away when you practice forgiveness and because we were not practicing forgiveness with each other and i was even a pastor and a bible memorizing christ loving preaching pastor i for two years worked on getting rid of my anger towards my wife and all it did was get worse in that two years because I thought I knew what forgiveness was. And at the end of two years, I had to look in my heart and say, and say to God and to myself, I don't think I know what forgiveness is. The evidence is I can't do it. Because in Ephesians, Paul says, be angry, but do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. So Paul knew how to get rid of his anger in less than a day. I worked for two years on it and couldn't do it. So Paul knew something I didn't know. I wanted to know what Paul knew. And so I cried out to God and said, let's just start over from scratch. Teach me what forgiveness is because I'm going to assume everything I've been taught may or may not be true. I'm just going to start over, look at your word, and just show me what forgiveness is. And God might have said, and I didn't hear it, but he could have easily said to me, I'm so glad you asked for that. I want to answer that prayer, but put your seatbelt on because this is going to rock your world. This is going to change your theology. It's going to change your ministry. It's going to change every relationship you have. It's going to change your soul. So Steve, brace yourself because this is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The life-changing gospel of Jesus Christ. And I can testify that that anger that I had towards Becky is gone. That I can forgive people in less than a day. That I know what it is to practice forgiveness. Any person, any sin, like we looked at last week in the scriptures, that fast. It doesn't mean that I don't feel the pain of sin. It doesn't mean that I don't need to grieve. It doesn't mean I wouldn't suffer the loss of the consequences of someone's sin against me but I can be free of my anger in a matter of minutes because I know something that sets me free. And I want to help you to be able to do that today. We're going to go through what I call the six basic steps of personal forgiveness. I'm going to explain what personal forgiveness is in a second, but I do need to say this. Someone said to me this morning as I walked in, oh, so we're getting part two. I said, no, not really. You're just getting part of a much bigger picture of a, a seminar that's 10 hours long. You're getting the most important pieces. The Holy Spirit, depending on who you are and what you already know and what you're hung up with and where your brokenness is, the Holy Spirit may or may not be able to take you big steps forward given what I shared last week and this week. Or... Or you might still be stuck because there's other things about forgiveness that you need to know. We're just, we're just focusing on 
some of the most important basics. And one of, and I shared, remember last week, the four biggest missing pieces, I believe, in the church's understanding today of biblical forgiveness. And the most important one is this, that, that forgiveness and sins are like a coin, and every coin has two sides. That sin is a crime against God, and every crime has a penalty, has a penalty. But sins are also stupid acts, like putting your hand on a hot stove. And when you put your hand on a hot stove, you will get burned. You will suffer the consequences. The good news of the Bible is, is that through Jesus Christ, God can forgive us of the penalty of our sin. And he also can forgive us of the consequences of our sins. The important thing to realize is the way he forgives penalty is different from the way he forgives consequences. He forgives the penalty of sin because Jesus Christ has died and paid the penalty once for all. Because Jesus Christ died the death you should have died, God doesn't have to execute you. Hallelujah. Amen. Let me say that again. God should have taken you out and executed you for every one of your sins. He's not going to. Why? It's because Jesus Christ already died for you. It doesn't matter even that you believe. Jesus, God doesn't forgive you because you believe. He doesn't forgive you of the penalty because you repent. He forgives you for one reason and one reason only. Somebody already died in your place to pay for your sins. Hallelujah. God says, I don't have to punish you. Come home. I love you because I loved you. I sent my son and I executed him in your place. You don't have to be afraid of me anymore. Come home, and now let's deal with the other side of the problem of sin. Because if you don't let me forgive you of the consequences of your sin, I'm not going to kill you, but sin is going to kill you forever. Because going to hell is not the penalty for sin. It is the consequence of never letting Jesus save you from the penalties. I'm, excuse me, the consequence. So there's these two sides of sin and two sides of forgiveness. And I didn't give you the definitions in the sermon. You brought them home in your notepaper, and I hope you did a little Bible study homework this last week. Um, and let's, but let's put the first one up there, shall we? We call one side of forgiveness the side where God forgives the penalty of sin, and it's not the men's breakfast. <laughs> so I'm going to stall here. <laughs> there we go. These are our own, um, these are not Bible verses. This is the definition we just constructed and a title that we gave it. The forgiveness of the penalty of sin, whether we're receiving God's forgiveness of the penalty or what I'm going to show you how to forgive someone else of the penalty or whether you're asking someone to forgive you of the penalty, this definition fits for all three of those paths. Let's read this out loud together, shall we? Personal forgiveness is releasing someone from having to pay the penalty for their own sins in light of the fact that Jesus Christ has already paid for their sins in full through his physical execution. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ, or at least it's half of the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
God is not going to execute you because Jesus Christ was already executed in your place and through his death he paid for all your sins. How many of your sins? How many of your sins? Louder. How many of your sins? The ones you've committed and the ones you have not yet. Matter of fact, when he died for your sins, you hadn't committed any of your sins. Amen? Amen? You weren't even born yet. God was taking care of a problem that you had before you even existed. Wow, what a gracious God we have. He forgives us because Jesus Christ already paid the penalty. And when you know that truth, this is where faith comes in. When you know the truth, when you believe this truth, you confess your sins and believe Jesus paid for them, guess what you experience? God's forgiveness of your sins. You don't make God forgive you you come to experience that he already has. You don't do anything to make God forgive you. You discover the good news he already has. And then you start to feel it and you start to live in it. I used to do it, well, I still do a lot of counseling, but people would say to me when I was a young pastor, they would tell the story of how they did terrible sins and they would say, and God asked me to, and I then would confess my sins to God and I would ask God to forgive me. And I thought, because I had been taught to ask God to forgive me, that's good, that's normal, that's biblical, that's what I assumed. You ask God to forgive you and, and so we, I'd let the person go on with their story. But I started to notice that these people who had asked God to forgive them were still living as if they were not forgiven. So I was a little confused. So I started asking these people when they said, and I asked God to forgive me, I said, stop for a second. What was his answer? And a lot of people would go, excuse me? And I go, what was his answer? I was deliberately being a little vague because they should know the answer to this question and what the question was about. What was his answer? I don't understand the question, Steve. Well, you just told me you asked God a question. You know what they would say to me? What was the question? Like, well, you just told me that you asked God to forgive you. Right. What was his answer? Easily, I'm not exaggerating, half of the Christians I was counseling said this. I don't know. Is that a person who has received God's forgiveness? No. Are they forgiven? I would say, according to the word of God and the blood of Jesus Christ, yes, they are. Do they know they're forgiven? No. And because they don't know the truth, they are not set free from their guilt and their shame. What a tragedy that a person could be fully forgiven by God and not know it. Not feel it. Not live in the joy and the excitement and the freedom and the thanksgiving and the gratitude of God that all my sins have been paid for once and for all. That's what God wants to bring us to, his children to, to know this truth that sets us free. But it's not just that Jesus died for our sins. It also means Jesus died for everybody else's sins. How do I forgive other people? We're going to focus on that more in a minute. It's by believing the same truth, that the same Jesus who died and paid for my sins died and paid for their sins. And when I know that truth and believe it, it sets me free 
from my heart's cry for justice, from my anger against them, from my need to get even. I don't need to get even with people who sin against me. God already got even with them at the cross of Christ. That's what I believe. And because I know that truth, that truth has set me free. Now, there's some steps around that. We're going to look at that. But let's go to the other side for a minute. The other side of forgiveness we call relational forgiveness, dealing with the forgiveness of the consequences. And not all consequences are relational, but they're the consequences over which we usually deal with the most. Somebody sins against you, it not only damages your soul, but it damages the relationship too, doesn't it? Someone lies to, about, to you or, or robs you or hits you or gossips about you. That doesn't just affect your soul. It affects how you can relate to them and how they can relate to you. And so relational forgiveness, which is based upon repentance of the guilty person, let's read this one out loud, sounds like this. Relational forgiveness is giving a person who has sinned the best opportunity to repent so that the negative consequences can be changed and loving relationships established. The goal of forgiveness is to create loving people in loving relationships. Can I say that again? The ultimate goal of all forgiveness, of God's forgiveness, is to create loving people who can have loving relationships. That's so important because life is all about love. Where there is no love, there is no life. Where there is life, there will be love. Forgiveness is how God, practicing forgiveness, is how God imparts life, his life, into broken, damaged... We just sang a song about Jesus is the resurrection and he is resurrecting me. He is healing me. He is making what is dead in me alive again. Well, how did that stuff get dead in me? Through my sin and other people's sins. And as I confess my sins and forgive other people, God changes me. He heals me. He resurrects me. He makes me alive. And alive means a loving person, able to love God better and love other people better. Now, I can't make other people love me. But I can learn how to give them the best opportunity to repent. And if they want to change, and if they want Jesus to change them, God will do that in their life. And as they repent and change and stop sinning against me, they become different people, and we can have loving relationship. But if they don't repent, I can't make them love me. I can love them, but they may never love me. Sometimes that happens, and it's a tragedy. It's a disaster and a tragedy for God because he loves all people and wants to have a loving relationship with everyone. But is everyone going to enter into a loving relationship with God? No. Most people say to God, no, I don't need you. I don't want you. You can go your way. And God says, well, I'm sorry to hear that. I still love you. It doesn't change my love for you. But if you don't want to stop sinning, I will not treat you as a robot. I will let you continue in your sin and you will suffer the consequences for how long? Eternally. See, hell is not the punishment. It's not the penalty for sin. 
It's simply God saying, if you want to continue in sin and not, not let me change you, I will let you do that. But I'm going to have to separate you from the people who want to stop sinning and love me and love each other. And that's why there's a judgment day. And that's why there's the sheep and the goats. And that's why there's a lake of fire. And that's why there's new heavens and new earth. And why these two groups of people have to be separated from each other. The group that wants to stop sinning and love God and love each other has to be separated from the group that does not want to stop sinning and keep sinning against God and each other because this group is going to destroy each themselves, each other, and their world forever. And if God lets these two groups live together, it's going to be a lot like what we're experiencing on this earth today. God's people still suffering at the hands of people who don't love God. So relational forgiveness is about giving people who sin the best opportunity to repent. We're not going to talk about that anymore today. I just wanted to highlight that because I know when we talk about forgiving the penalty, some of you are going to be going, yeah, but this person isn't changing. Yeah, I know that because we're not talking about that, this side of, of forgiveness. This side is where we give them the opportunity to change. Personal forgiveness is where God changes me or you if you're practicing it. So in your bulletin, there's a notepad or a note sheet, not a pad. And this is a page taken right out of our book. And I just want to walk you through what I call the six basic steps of this personal forgiveness. And I'm going to focus. Now, these six steps apply to whether you're Receiving God's forgiveness or forgiving someone else or asking someone to forgive you. They're the same six steps you walk through for all we call those the three paths of forgiveness. I sin against God, I need to receive his forgiveness. Other people sin against me, I need to forgive them. I sin against other people, I need to go and ask them to forgive me. All three of those paths of forgiveness are in the Bible. They're all of equal value. And they're all based on the same truth. We're going to focus on the second path, that is, people have been sinning against you, and you're hurt, you should be, and you're angry, and if you're not, you should be. That's why Ephesians um, 4.25 is written in a command, be angry, but do not sin, do not let, your, let the sun go down on your anger. You might be reading out of NIV. See, this is such, these truths have been so overlooked and twisted and muddied by Satan because Satan knows what will happen if God's people practice forgiveness well. Oh gosh, Satan's kingdom would fall so fast if God's people learned to practice forgiveness well. So he is targeting in the church biblical forgiveness. He's throwing counterfeits out there so that we don't understand. So even Bible translators will mess it up. In the Greek, that verse in Ephesians is written in what's called the imperative, which means it is a command. So if you read that verse, Ephesians 11.25, in New American Standard or in King James or in some of the other better translations, it will say, be angry. It could actually be translated, I command you to be angry. It's a command. But NIV translators and some of the other paraphrased versions Write it this way. In your anger, do not sin. They write it in a passive sense. Well, we know you're going to get angry, but in your anger, don't sin. 
Whereas the Holy Spirit's actually saying, there's a time and a place and a reason you should be angry and I command you to be angry. I want you to be angry, God says, at the same things I am angry at. Join me in my anger against sin and then do with it what I do with it. Follow my pattern. So we're going to look at these six steps that help us to join God in what he's already done with sin. These six steps are not a technique. They do not make forgiveness happen. What they are are like signposts that guide you to one or more truths that if you know and believe and feel, you're able to go on the next part of the journey. And at the end of the journey, there is freedom and healing and love. And it starts with, at the bottom, number one, is to identify the sin and the person responsible for it. If you're going to forgive someone of what they've done to you, you need to be clear and convinced in your heart and mind that what they've done to you is a real sin. Forgiveness is all about sins. Apologies are for accidents. Saying I'm sorry is inappropriate when a sin has taken place. If I walk down the aisle here and accidentally bump into his knee and cause him um, pain, I need to turn around and say, I am so sorry that was an accident. And he was, that wasn't so bad. And it's an accident. If you spill hot coffee into somebody's lap as an accident, you could give them second-degree burns with blisters. They could have a scar. They would be in terrible pain, but you should not say, oh, please forgive me. Because if it was an accident without sin, then Jesus didn't die for it. Forgiveness is about the cross of Jesus Christ. It's about sins. Apologies are necessary for accidents. The blood of Jesus is necessary for sins. And if you're going to forgive someone, you need to identify, am I angry at this person because I just don't like what they're doing or because it was an accident? Or am I angry at this person because they actually sinned against me, that what they did, God himself would call a sin? Now, how do you know if something's a sin? Well, obviously, in the Bible, God has given us his laws and his commandments. And so things like murder, you don't have to ask God, Lord, is murder a sin? God, God will be silent if you answer that, ask that prayer, because he'll basically be saying, I already wrote that down a long time ago. You should know the answer to this one. So go back and read the textbook. Is adultery a sin? I wrote that one down, too. Is stealing a sin? Yes. But God can't write a law for every way human beings can sin against each other. That would make the Bible many volumes long. So God also gives principles such as love your neighbor as yourself. That's a principle. It's a command, yes, but it's based on a principle. You need to love your neighbor in the same way you love yourself. The problem with principles is they have loopholes. People can find... Remember that story where Jesus was challenged by a lawyer of his day and said, and just who is my neighbor? He wanted to find a way to worm out of that. You know, love your neighbor as 
yourself. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. You know, that's a principle. That's a guideline. But I'll tell you the clearest, fastest way to find a sin is simply this. It's to ask this question. Would Jesus have done that? Would Jesus? You know, sometimes the what would Jesus do? It's similar to that. You don't know what to do next. You're looking at your future. You have a choice to make. What should I? Well, what would Jesus do in my shoes? If Jesus were me in my situation, what would he do? That's a very helpful way of finding out the right answer. Well, when you're looking for sins in the past, just simply turn it around and say, would Jesus have done that? Would Jesus slap his wife? No. Of course not. Does God have to write? Are there any Bible verses that say, thou shalt not, husband, slap your wife? No, there are not. But would Jesus slap his wife? No. So when a husband slaps his wife, what is he committing? A sin. See, Jesus never sins. Jesus himself is the best standard of love and sin. You want to know what love looks like? Look at Jesus. You want to know what sin looks like? Look at what Jesus would never do. Would Jesus abuse a child if he were a parent? Would Jesus abuse any child? Would Jesus steal? Here's the, now see, the reason why this is so helpful is you and I, because there's so much sin around us, tend to only look at the big sins in our lives. The rapes, the murders, the adultery, the theft, those kind of things. And we ignore 80, 90, 95% of the sins that are really happening in our life that are the everyday little sins that still need the blood of Jesus, still damage our soul. We still need to forgive that person, but we're ignoring it because it's not that big of a deal. So let me give you an example of how this, what would Jesus do like this, can expose sin that you would never see. Would Jesus drive over the speed limit? You like that one? Why are you laughing at that? You're laughing because you're all guilty. But you've never thought of driving over the speed limit as a sin, have you? Oh, it may be against the law, but come on. Everybody does it. But Jesus wouldn't. Because, you see, driving the speed limit has to do with safety and courtesy and protecting other people by the way you drive and handle a machine that can maim, paralyze, and kill people. Jesus would drive safely out of love for the people around him. Why do we not drive that way? Because we're in a hurry. We need to get to where we, we have an agenda. We have things to do. We, 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 we it's all about us. We drive fast because we, it, I have to get there right now and you're in my way. So get out of the way. Honk, 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 honk. And everybody does it and we don't see it as a sin. There are so many things in your life you do not see as a sin because you've never compared them to Jesus. There is so much more sin in this world than you can imagine. And that's the bad news. The good news is Jesus has died for it all. Secondly, Jesus can heal you, change you, transform you so that you can become like him. Eventually, he'll drive like Jesus if you want to. If you don't want to repent, though, you will still suffer the consequences of driving over the speed limit. And it won't just be accidents. It'll just be your soul will still be broken. You know how you know when you're not driving over speed limit? When you're driving 
and every time you hear or see a, a siren or a police officer, you quickly look at your, speed, your speedometer, <laughs> which means you're always living in a sense of, I'm doing what's wrong, and I know I'm doing what's wrong, and I might get caught, and I might suffer the consequences. Is that freedom? Is that peace? Does that lead to health in your body? No. That just means you're under stress all the time. You see my point? What would Jesus do? Would he, if Jesus were a father, would he abandon his children? If Jesus, you have to use your imagination. What would Jesus look like as a wife, as a woman? How would he, how would he, she treat, how would Jesus treat his husband? What would Jesus look like as a teenage girl? How would she treat her parents? Would Jesus, as a teenage girl, let a teenage boy touch her inappropriately? Is that love? Is that what Jesus would do? No. Would a teenage boy try to touch a teenage girl inappropriately? Jesus wouldn't do that. So when you're angry at someone, when you feel hurt by someone, you need to start by asking the question, is this a real sin? Or is this person just not treating me as God and building their life around me and, and I don't like it? Most of the time it's going to be a real sin. And you can find out by asking, would Jesus do this? That's the first step. Once you're sure it's a real sin, you need to go to the second step, which is to feel the reality of the sin together with God. The key word is to feel. All sins are real. All sins are damaging. Unless your soul has been paralyzed, just like the human body can be paralyzed, the human soul can be emotionally paralyzed, sometimes deliberately and sometimes by the nature of the sin itself. You know, there are children who get abused in such a way that they cannot remember, let alone feel, they cannot remember one, two, three, four, five years of their childhood life. They have amnesia. Counselors know that. You hear that someone can't remember, you know, they say, I can't remember anything in my life between the time I was five and eight. Oh gosh, that's not a good sign. That means something happened that that soul has suppressed so significantly. They had to suppress not just the painful event, but everything around it as well. But it doesn't have to be that severe. I mean, we all learn to suppress our emotions. We don't like feeling guilt, so we learn to busy ourselves and think of other things and suppress our guilt. We don't like feeling pain, and we shouldn't, so we learn to, to, to medicate ourselves, to watch television, to play video games. We, we learn to do things to cover up the emotions we don't want to face. It's one of the reasons why being a workaholic is, is such a, a good symptom of someone's um, problems in their life because why are they a workaholic? Because they can't stop and be silent and quiet and do nothing because when they're quiet and doing nothing, what happens? All these bad feelings they're trying to avoid just flood into the here and now and they say, I don't want this. I got to go find something. I got to go dig a hole or something. Get my mind off of this. Well, this step means we need to feel the reality of the sin. We, and us men in America, in America, we are brainwashed from childhood not to have emotions. Amen, guys? You show your emotions on the playground in junior high or high school, you're going to be called a baby, a sissy, and get beat up every day. 
You'll be picked on the rest of your life. We make jokes about it, but I want to tell you this. It is healthy and godly to feel what God feels. God hates sin. Can you feel that together with God? God feels hurt when he watches his children get hurt by sin. Can you feel that? Can you feel what God feels? Sometimes people say to me, well, I just don't feel this at all. You're asking me, Steve, to get angry, and I think I'm being a good Christian by not feeling anger. I said, you're not being a good Christian by not feeling angry. God's angry at these things, and you're not angry? What, are you better than God, you think? No, you're paralyzed. You're emotionally paralyzed. It's a symptom of your brokenness. You need to pray and say, Lord, help me to feel what you feel. Help me to live in your life, in your reality. Help me to be angry at what you're angry at, to hurt over what you hurt over. Help me to have your heart. And one of the reasons why we don't feel these things and suppress these things is when they happened, we felt we were alone and God wasn't there. We need to feel these sins again, but this time not alone. We need to feel them together with God. We need to talk to God. And men, we could learn from the ladies around us because women are much more in tune with when you get hurt, one of the most comforting, helpful things that can happen is to go to someone who you can trust, tell them what happened to you and how you feel, and to let them empathize with you. Amen, ladies? See, women do that naturally. Men do not. So men, we've got to pay attention and let the ladies teach us. Let your wife teach you. Let your daughters teach you. Let your sisters teach you. Let your mother teach you. You need people to empathize with you. That's one of the ways that God empathizes with you. Don't feel these things alone. Feel them together with God. One of the most powerful, profound, and important verses in the Bible that is so overlooked is in Genesis, where God has made everything, and he's going through the process of making the sky and the dry land and the plants, and, and at, at the end of almost every day, he says something. What does he say? This is good. This is good. This is good. And at the end of six days, what does he say about everything? It's very good. <laughs> this is very good. And then we read in Genesis 2, he's looking at Adam. He hasn't made Eve yet. He tells the story over in a little different sequence to, for a different lesson. Different. He looks at Adam, and Adam is all by himself, and he says, uh, this is not good. And he says, what is not good? Adam has not sinned. There's no sin in the world at all. He says, this is not good. You know the verse. What was not good about Adam? Not be alone. Now imagine this. A world with no sin, no death, no sickness, no war, no rape, no prejudice, no disease. And if you're all by yourself in paradise, God would say, this is not good. You're all alone. Which means God did not make the human soul to be able to experience life in aloneness. Now, if it's not good for a man to be alone or a woman to be alone in a perfect world, how much worse is it to be alone in a sin-sick world? It's an utter disaster. Satan is always trying to get us to face these things alone. 
And in America, we throw gasoline on that fire. Be independent. Be strong. Do it yourself. God says that's idiotic. That's stupid. You will not survive this alone. You need to do this with me and with others who love you and with whom you can trust. Don't let yourself be alone. Third step is to acknowledge the just penalty for this sin. This is a very important and challenging step theologically. We say the right words in the church, but no human being believes what the, the truth that this step is pointing us to. What did Jesus die for? What was he paying? Sins, right? Okay, which sins? See, you know the right answer. That is the right answer. Jesus died for which sins? All sins. So which sins are deserving of death? Now I want to challenge you and make you aware that you probably don't really believe that. Let me give you some examples. What is the penalty for the sin of raping and torturing and killing 50 women? What's the penalty for that sin? Anyone disagree with that one? Should God take that person out and kill him? Yeah. What if, what if a man does that to one woman? Should he take him out and kill him? Yeah. What if the man just rapes her but doesn't torture and kill her? Should he be taken out and executed? Yeah. What if he just slaps her in the face? Should God take him out and kill him? You see what's happening? See, we live in a world we, where we measure sins as to their severity, how severe their consequences are. And we all know that the more severe sins are deserving of more severe consequences. And that is true when you're talking about consequences. But when it comes to the penalty of sin, the Bible simply says this, every sin is exactly the same. James says it this way in his little book at the end of the New Testament. Whoever keeps the whole law, okay, now he's saying hypothetically a person who never has sinned at all and yet stumbles in one point, it is as if he has become guilty of the whole thing. And he says why? For the God who said you shall not commit murder is the same God who said you shall not commit adultery. And then James says this. So that means this. If you do not commit adultery, but you do commit murder, you have broken God's law. Because breaking God's law, the penalty of sin is like trespassing. It doesn't matter where you trespass or how you trespass. Once you cross the line, you've trespassed and you're dead. Which means this. Put your seatbelt on. If a five-year-old little girl looks at her mother who gives her some healthy, correct directions, puts her hands on her hips and says, no, mommy, I don't want to. What does God have to do to that little girl's sin? What would he have to do to her to bring about justice? See what I mean by you don't really believe Jesus has to die for all sins. You only believe Jesus has to die for the bad sins. 
The Bible says Jesus had to die for all sins. Why does Jesus have to die for all sins? Because every sin is a death penalty offense, no matter who commits it or what it is. It doesn't matter whether you're three years old and commit a sin, and three-year-olds can commit sins. If you're not a parent yet, you'll learn that when you become parents. It doesn't matter whether God loves you or not. It doesn't matter if you're a Christian or not. It doesn't matter. There are, when, when human beings commit sins, any shape, size, or form at any time, we just cross the line and become deserving of death. It's a good thing Jesus died for which sins? All of them. Because if he didn't die for them all, God would have to take us out and execute us. So you've identified this person's sin against you. You felt this person's sin against you. I want to suggest that then you say out loud to yourself this question. If I take Jesus out of the picture for a minute, Jesus and the cross don't exist for just a second, so I can join with God, what would a holy and just God have to do to this person who sinned against me in order to bring about divine justice? Ask a question like that. What would God have to do, even though he loves this person, what would he have to do because he's a just, righteous, and holy God and he can't cut corners and he can't let sin slide? Every sin has to be paid for or God is not just. What would God have to do to my mother because of the sin she committed against me when I was a little girl? And then say out loud, God would have to take her out and execute her. And see how you feel about that statement. Because that's what the Bible says is true. See if you're there yet. See if you can agree with God. Because God is like a judge and he says, I sentence this person to death. See if you go, yes, I believe that. That's true. God would have to do that. Or if you do what I did once when I was first trying to forgive my 18-year-old son for disrespecting me for many months and it came to a head one night and uh, I was very, very angry with him and I drove out on Marsh Creek Road at 11 o'clock at night, 11.30 at night and I'm going through these six steps. What did my son do? And I identified his sin and I could feel the hurt and I could feel the anger and then I said, and what would God have to do to my son to bring about divine justice if Jesus had not come and died for this sin? What would God have to do to Michael? And I said out loud, God would have to take Michael out and execute him. You know what came out of my mouth out loud instantly? I said, no God, not my son. Now I was teaching forgiveness. I was teaching these principles at this time. And God was showing me, Steve, you don't even believe what you teach. I said, no God... You have to die for everybody else's sins. You would execute everyone else, but I don't want you executing my children. I don't want to believe that. But I don't know of any verse in the Bible that says God has to um, bring about divine justice and execute everybody except the people you love. No, it's everybody. And I heard God say in my thoughts that night, he said, get out of my way. Your son sinned against me. Five minutes later, I heard God say in my thoughts, by the way, he's my son, not yours. Third thing he said about five minutes later was, 
and I never sin against him. God was challenging me. He was saying to me, you think you love Michael more than I do? Think again. He's my son, not yours. You're just his temporary earthly father. I'm his eternal father. I love him far more than you. And oh, Steve, if you want to compete with me about who loves Michael more, remember this. I have never sinned against Michael. Implying what? You have. So let's not talk about who loves Michael more. This is not about love, Steve. This is about sin and justice. What would God have to do to my son in light of his sin against me? He'd have to take him out and execute him. I had to learn that lesson. It's a hard lesson to learn. It's a truth. But the good news is, is God going to execute my son? No. Why not? He already executed his son in my son's place. Can you feel that? Jesus said, Dad, let's not execute Michael. Execute me instead of Michael. And that way we can forgive Michael. We don't have to execute him and justice will still be established. And God the Father said, let's do that. And 2,000 years ago, the Son of God became a human being, had a physical body, never sinned, never should have died, went to a cross voluntarily and said, okay, let's do it. And God the Father put Michael's sin on Jesus. Sin of teenage disrespect and not rebellion, just disrespect and selfishness and unappreciativeness, the normal stuff we're all guilty of. And then God the Father treated Jesus as if he were guilty of that, those sins. And the only just way to treat Jesus was to execute him. And just before Jesus died, he said, it is finished. You know what that Greek word really means? It is finished. It's one word. It is finished. It's the same word that a Roman judge would write on a, a, a certificate of debt, which was the sentence, the paperwork for a criminal sentence. It literally means this, paid in full. Jesus is dying on the cross, his last breath, paid in full and died. And God wrote paid in full on Michael's certificate of debt. God forgave Michael before Michael was born. I had to catch up to what God had already done. I had to embrace this fourth step. I had to embrace the execution of Jesus as the full and just payment for Michael's sin. You need to do that with the people who have sinned against you. Just as you bring your sins to the cross and believe Jesus died for you, you need to get into the habit and to believe and to practice Jesus died for them too. So you take your sins to God, and this is actually now the fifth step. You communicate with the appropriate person. You look at this sin. You felt this sin. You've condemned this sin, and you believe Jesus has paid for this sin. What do you do? You go to God in prayer, and you thank God, not for the sin, but for showing you that it's a sin. Lord God, thank you for showing me how Michael sinned against me when he was disrespectful and misused my property and then didn't follow my directions. And Lord, he's been doing this for a long time. And 
Lord, thank you for showing me his sin because I've been acting as a codependent enabler. I've been letting this slide. I've been letting him damage me and the sin is piling up. I was living in ignorance and brokenness and tolerating it. Thank you for showing me Michael's sin and thank you for hating how he's been treating me, the ungratefulness and the disrespect. And thank you, Lord, for being angry at this. You're more angry at this than I am. And thank you, Lord, for condemning Michael's sin and for condemning even Michael. But Lord Jesus, and here's where the prayer really gets powerful. Lord Jesus, Lord Jesus, thank you for dying for my son, Michael. Thank you for paying for his sin. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for executing your son in my son's place. Thank you, God, for forgiving Michael. I join you in your forgiveness. See, I said this last week. When you forgive someone, you're not actually forgiving them as much as you're discovering they're already forgiven by God. And you're entering into God's forgiveness of this person. You don't make forgiveness happen. God makes forgiveness happen. You just come to the realization that it has already happened and you enter into it. And then I said, Lord, now show me how to love Michael with the love you have for him. And that's the sixth step, is to let God's love flow. How do you love the people who sin against you? I don't know, because that depends sin to sin, person to person, the kind of sin, the kind of relationship you have with this person. But I do know this. Real forgiveness always results in real love. People ask me, how will I know if I've really forgiven someone? Steve, you said the opposite of forgiveness is anger. So if I've forgiven someone... Or if my anger is gone, does that guarantee my that I've forgiven the person? I say no. When you forgive someone, the anger will go. But because we humans are so good at disguising our anger and suppressing our anger, you can't use your anger as the clue. The real evidence that you have forgiven someone is that you have a passionate desire to see God bless them. And you even volunteer to be a part of that blessing. You know what that's called? Loving your enemies. Loving your enemies. How do you come to love your enemies? By gritting your teeth. When God commands me to love my enemies, so I'm just going to do good things for them and pray for them no matter what they've done to me? Is that love? No, no, no. That's not love. If you're going to love your enemies, you have to forgive your enemies first because the fruit of real forgiveness is real love. Forgive your enemies. You'll find yourself praying for them. And if God says, they slapped you on one cheek, this time I want you to turn and let them slap you on the other cheek, which is not what you're supposed to do in every situation, you'll go, is that the most loving thing to do? Is that what Jesus would do in this case for this person at this time? And you hear God say yes, then you say, all right, because I love them and because I love you, I'll turn the cheek. Not with gritted teeth, but with love in your heart. But love will also spank. Love will also arrest. Love will say, no, you can't do this anymore. 
but it won't do it in anger. It'll do it in love, saying, I see you're destroying your life, and I care for you so much. I want God to bless you, and so I'm going to give you the best opportunity to repent, relational forgiveness, and I'm going to get in your way. If you're going to sin, that's your choice, but you're going to have to run right over me to do it because I love you. Love is not apathetic. Love is active. Love finds a way to help people stop sinning. But it starts with God healing your soul. It means you have to learn to confess your sins, receive forgiveness of the penalty of your sins at the cross. It means you have to learn to pray and thank Jesus for dying for the people who sinned against you. Thank God for forgiving them and then join God in his forgiveness. And then also you need to learn to go and ask the people you sinned against, confessing your sins to them and asking them to forgive you. You do those three things, your life will so change. Miracle after miracle after miracle. You'll become more like Jesus, which is something that no human being can do. It is something only God can do in you if you want him to and follow his directions. Amen? Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for this wonderful gift of forgiveness. Thank you for dying and paying, Lord Jesus, for all of our sins and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. Thank you that we can forgive anyone and everyone of the sins they have committed against us because of the cross. And thank you that when we do that, you heal us, Lord. You set us free. You transform us. You cause us to become more like Jesus. Lord, we pray for ourselves. We pray for our families here. We pray for each other. We pray for this church that you would cause us to become people who excel at doing this. And we are looking forward to great and mighty miracles that you would do in us, through us, and among us because of your gift of forgiveness in Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen? Amen. Amen. Thank you.